Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast Pitchfest 2020 series. I'm Nick Shirelli. Thanks for joining me. Late last year, OIO ran the Ocean Impact Pitchfest 2020. We were inundated with almost 200 applications from 38 countries and were blown away by the incredible breadth and quality of ideas and ventures that applied, all trying to make a positive impact on planet Ocean. Over the course of this Pitchfest 2020 series, we'll dive into the challenge and opportunity areas that each of the finalists are working on, find out about their unique solution, and discuss the key challenges and learnings they've encountered on their journey so far. We'll also discuss their why, their motivation for working towards a healthy ocean, what the road ahead looks like for them, and how you, the listener, might be able to support their journey. This week, I'm speaking to Brian Takeda, who is the founder and CEO of Urchinomics. Urchinomics is a restorative aquaculture venture that aims to turn the environmental challenge of overgrazing urchins into a commercial, ecological and social opportunity. Due to a combination of overfishing of predatory species, climate change and pollution, sea urchin populations have exploded, causing catastrophic imbalances in coastal ecosystems around the world. Uncontrolled quantities of sea urchins overgraze kelp forests and seagrass meadows, turning once pristine and vibrant carbon-sequestering marine ecosystems into lifeless, barren deserts or urchin barrens. Devoid of food, these urchins then starve away and become empty shells that just barely survive. Empty sea urchins have no nutritional value, so predatory fish avoid eating them. Urchin fishers have no incentive to fish them either, as they have no commercial value, because they have no roe. Without any predatory pressure, urchin barons can persist for decades or even centuries. Urchinomics specifically target these ecologically destructive, empty sea urchins and rehome them into their proprietary aquaculture ranching systems. Here they are fed a natural, formulated feed for 5-10 to ten weeks, until they are full of delicious roe and ready for sale to high-end restaurants around the world. As a result of removing the empty sea urchins from the barrens, urchinomics helped kelp forests recover to their original majesty, bringing marine biodiversity and biomass back to coastal ecosystems. The restoration also contributes to carbon sequestration, as well as reducing the effects of coastal erosion and localised ocean acidification. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Brian Takeda on the Ocean Impact Podcast, Pitchfest 2020 series. Good evening, Brian, and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast, uh, Pitchfest 2020 series. Uh, I should, probably should say good morning in your case. You're um, you're calling in from Norway, and I'm in Sydney here. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Thanks very much for joining us, Brian. It's um, I'm excited to have this discussion today. This is um, this is one of my um, uh, favourite finalists, if you like, if I can say that I have a final a favourite from the Pitchfest um, 2020 Urchinomics. We're here today to talk about Urchinomics. Let's get straight into it. Um, tell the listeners what. What it is? What is Urchinomics doing? What's the problem you're solving? Uh, give us a little bit of a little bit of background. Sure. So first of all, Urchinomics is all about coastal ecosystem restoration. 
essentially all around the world, Nick. Uh, if you combine the problems of overfishing of predatory species without really looking at the entire trophic ecosystem, uh, you add climate change and pollution to the mix, we're essentially creating the perfect storm of a situation where sea urchins can explode in population and overgraze entire kelp forests and turn what used to be one of the most important and most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet, and they will collapse it to a essentially an urchin barren or a desert-like situation where nothing survives but urchins. Uh, for us Japanese, uh, having lots of urchins you'd think would be a good thing because it's such a delicacy in the world, but the problem is that when you have too many urchins that have collapsed entire kelp forests, they have no food and they become empty and they become commercially valueless. Uh, and unfortunately, that means that predatory species don't eat them, humans don't eat them. So they'll just sit around for decades or centuries preventing kelp forests from recovering and keeping it in a desert state. So what we do at Urchinomics is we specifically target those ecologically destructive urchins and we take them out of the water and we, we rehome them in our land-based aquaculture systems. And we feed them a naturally derived formulated feed uh, made by kelp. And we essentially convert them from an ecologically destructive animal that is preventing kelp forests from growing and turning them into premium seafood or uni in a matter of six to 12 weeks using our proprietary tech. That's amazing. So it's a, it's a, a seafood business and climate change mitigation it's biodiversity increasing biodiversity um all in the one solution exactly yeah essentially uh pretty much everywhere in the world with the the odd exception uh if you remove the sea urchins that are preventing kelp forests from recovering that kelp forest will bounce back very very quickly in the nordics where the sunlight is is, is gone for six months of the year it takes about six to seven months in warmer sunnier places like los angeles for example it's three and a half months uh, so we're talking about ecosystem restoration that happens very very quickly because it's the nature of kelp and, and where are the problem areas around the world brian where are the where are the hotspots for urchins right so I originally thought this urchin barren thing was a very regional uh, problem, but I soon discovered that uh, essentially the country of Japan is nearly entirely one massive urchin barren. Uh, after discussing with scientists around the world, we've then learned that a good chunk of eastern Canada uh, is one massive urchin barren. Nearly 40% of the coastline of Norway is an urchin barren. Uh, California, uh, particularly northern California, has lost over 90% of its kelp forests due to sea urchins. Uh, the South has lost a good chunk as well. Uh, and of course, in Australia, uh, you have from uh, New South Wales all the way down to, to Tasmania, you have massive urchin barrens developing, all because you have this overproduction of sea urchins in the sea. And it's, and it's becoming more of an issue as we, as we start to talk about and, and see um, many scientists tell us about the potential of kelp to sequester significant amounts of carbon. It's becoming, you know, more topical, this conversation as to, you know, well, how do we remove the urchins en masse to allow kelp regrowth to not only bring back biodiversity in an area, but to mitigate significant amounts of carbon? Right. And, and that's exactly the, the, the challenge that we're facing is that governments uh, and nonprofit organizations recognize the value and importance of kelp forests, not just for carbon sequestration, but also, as you say, maintaining that biodiversity that, that essentially is it's the nursery for our entire oceans. Uh, the, the, the problem, though, is that when the urchins take over, 
nobody has any economic incentive to remove them. And if the fishers don't catch them and if the predatory species don't eat them because they're, they don't have the calorific, calorific value, then they just sit there. So it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy, but nobody has any incentive to do anything. So what we have done is we have taken our technologies and essentially turned those urchins into essentially a valuable input so that we can incentivize fishers and essentially pay them to catch these urchins and bring them to us so that we can ranch them and convert them into one of the world's most premium seafoods or uni in that six to 12 week window. Mm. Yeah, that's what I really love about urchinomics, Brian, this, you know, you're starting with almost with the customer in mind. I mean, at, 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 at the end of the day, your, your consumers in, in markets around the world um, have a taste for uni and there's a good price um, that can be fetched for it. And obviously that flows right down through to the fishers that are actually incentivized properly to um, to retrieve the urchins from from the barrens. I mean, you know, let's talk for a moment. What were what did solutions to the urchin barrens look like um, when only looked at through a conservation lens? The, the challenge from the conservation uh, perspective is, the, at the end of the day, it goes back to economics. When you have grant funding and you have a state that's willing to put in money, the restoration works, kelp forests uh, rebound, fish come back, it's, it's beautiful. But then once the funding runs out, then the urchins crowd back in again. And if you don't have that sustained removal effort, those kelp forests or the restoration that we do purely on governmental grants, it, it has its limitations. So, so what we want to do is we want to be that economic engine that allows this sustained removal to, to continue to be a part of the process so that we can get to that tipping point where we have enough predatory species, uh, we, 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 the, the kelp forest can essentially sustain that predatory level, and we can slowly restore the kelp forest again. It's, it's environmental sustainability, starting with a sustainable business, right? It's, um, and a lot of, you know, traditional conservationists would that take the view of, um, you know, minimum interventions or no interventions would be aghast uh, at first, um, <laughs> you know, at first mention of something like this. But you know what? The, it, it really speaks to, you know, a different mindset around this, a new mindset where, you know, business really can be a driver of, of environmental impact. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, the, so had we been so, if we had no impact on nature, and, and there was no uh, anthropogenic effects on the oceans. Fine, I, I buy that argument. Okay, leave it alone, it'll be fine. But we affect the oceans so much, we need to take corrective measures. And so our approach, again, is based entirely on the science. So we work with the local scientists who understand the ecosystems, who tell us, okay, this stuff is out of balance. We need to do this, therefore we deploy. So we would never lead and charge into a new region doing it on our own because of our own self-interest. We always partner with local scientists first and only when they can essentially give us their blessing because they know that what we're doing will not have negative unintended consequences, those are the times where we engage. So we're very much a big fan of science and, and we will always work with local scientists. Yeah, that's a good... Um... Good segue into my next question. You mentioned new regions there. Tell us a little bit about what you're hoping to do in Australia. I mean, uh, for the listeners out there, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't know this. I mean, you probably, you know, you might be sitting in Sydney or anywhere along the southern east coast. There's a significant urchin problem right here, stretching from northern New South Wales right down to Tasmania. Um, tell us a little bit about your ambitions for Australia. 
Sure. So our commercial focus has been in Japan, Canada, and the United States, where uh, sea urchin industries exist already. The infrastructure is there, and a lot of the things that that we need to be uh, to be successful are already founded there. So that's where our commercial efforts are are focusing. Uh, however, we also recognize that our technologies can do a lot of good in other regions that may not have the same infrastructure in place because the urchin industry has not been all proven out or built out before, Australia being one, uh, Norway being the other. Uh, but essentially what we're looking to do is while we focus our private investment in markets that have established urchin industries, we are also looking to deploy our technologies in regions like Australia and Norway, where effectively uh, we will be opening up our IP and working with local stakeholders to essentially get this business model to establish itself uh, in, in, in Australia. Uh, we have a program called the Urchinomics Impact uh, Program, and this is essentially a program in which we take our entire suite of IP. So whether it's the feed technology, the aquaculture systems, market access, packaging, logistics, all that jazz, we will literally make that available to our partners uh, on the condition, on the condition that any profits that come from that are reinvested back into the restoration effort. So that's the trade-off. We're not going to lose money or make money off this initiative, but we are happy to make our technology available for the sake of impact. Why are we doing that in Australia? Well, partially it's because markets like Australia, where the urchin industry is not proven yet or established yet, the, the, the economic risk of deploying private capital loans is a little bit too high right now. So we have the option of either saying, forget it, we're just going to ignore Australia and focus on the other regions. Or we could say, you know what, we don't have time to wait. So let's find another way to get the urchinomics technology deployed in Australia so that we can generate impact. And that's the route that we're taking uh, for Australia. So New South Wales, Victoria, uh, Tasmania, of course, uh, would be the three areas that we're looking at and finding ways to deploy our tech. Awesome. I love it. It's just another... another um another impact angle in the ergonomic story. Um, I know we're going to... Yeah, we just, we just don't have time to, to, to wait around for private capital to be able to deploy it. And, you know, because they, they make a, a fair argument. I mean, you know, are Australian urchins really that good? Can it justify the market prices that makes this business model work? The answer is we don't know yet. So we can either wait and try to figure it out or we can deploy it, move and get things going and get the ecological impact. And we chose the latter. And there's probably, there's probably something to say there as well about, you know, making sure that you only um, uh, bite off as much as you can chew at any one time, like any sort of startup, right? You guys are mostly operating in the Northern Hemisphere where down here on the other side of the world, it's, you know, it's logistically, it's difficult to, to be here or impossible, then you've got to find the right partners. There's the science yep. side, there's policy regulation. There's so many different angles to this. Um, so, I mean, really, I can, I can see that it makes complete sense to, um, you know, try and deploy your impact model here and attract partners to, to the issue rather than go out and, and, and find those partners yourself. I mean, you're almost asking them to come and find you. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, in 2016, 2017, we tried uh, ourselves to uh, establish something in, in, in Tassie. And uh, to your point, there, there were just too many challenges and too many local nuances that, that we just did not have the, the capacity or the understanding to handle. 
So uh, we're thinking that this approach, the impact model where we work with nonprofits, philanthropists, impact investors, uh, local stakeholders, the, the abalone fisheries that already have a, a bounty on, on, on the urchins, essentially everyone that wants to see the kelp forests restore, we're open to collaborating with. And we recognize that, you know, each country is each region is different. So we're open to kind of, you know, uh, twist and, and, and adjust to, to the local realities. We just want to see impact because I just feel it is, it, it is, it is wrong, really, uh, that when we know that we have the technology to potentially do so much good and out of pure greed, we decide not to make it available. That, that, that doesn't sound right. Uh, we'll, the commercial investors will pursue our opportunities in Japan, Canada and the U.S., it's it's the it's the more marginal regions that we we we, we need to find another way uh, as it. opposed to just waiting for the the commercial investors i've got a saying that i find myself using a little bit where in this you know ocean impact space where uh, we identify people that that can help us on our journey and i i quite often hear myself saying to tim you know this this or that person has a they have a moral ob obligation to help us mm. based on the skill and background that they have and alignment of mission and so forth. And yeah, <laughs> I love hearing that from you. It's wrong not to do it. Um, that's yeah, you're right. Mor moral obligation. I think that's a very strong driver, not just for myself, but for my team. Uh, and I think that's why they spend that extra, extra hours in the day just to try to keep on pushing because uh, we, we just, we just don't have time. It's, it's the right thing to do. Um, Brian, let's just a slight change of tack. Let's, let's go back a little bit and now and sort of talk a little bit about your your why. Um, can you explain, you know, where did the idea for Urchinomics come from? Where was the absolute genesis of the idea and, and, mm -hmm. and why did you decide to tackle this specific problem? Sure. So uh, the, the origins of the genesis of Urchinomics was actually the 2011 tsunami. Uh, we had an opportunity to meet uh, tsunami-affected fishers the following year after the tsunami, and they told us uh, some some incredibly heart-wrenching stories. Uh, but but what what really affected me was that it wasn't the rebuilding of their homes or their businesses or their boats that was the issue, because the insurance took care of that. The problem was that when they went out fishing again, they couldn't catch anything because the sea urchins uh, by that time, the predatory species were all washed away by the tsunami, and the urchins had essentially an unlimited opportunity to reproduce. Uh, in northeastern Japan, the urchin population increased sevenfold within uh, one to two years, and they completely obliterated one of the most productive uh, fishing grounds in the country. And this happened in such a short period of time. That's when I realized, well, wait a minute, we have a lot of the tech here in Norway to probably convert those urchins that are a pain in the butt and turn them into premium product. Let's see if we can make it work. And that's kind of how we started testing the concept and, and, and getting it to a, to a commercial venture. So that was the, the genesis. But it was the collaboration with the scientists that made me realize how big this problem was. Essentially, if you think of any industrial fishing country, you can pretty much guarantee that in their territorial waters, they will have urchin barrels. So it's just that most countries don't have the financial resources to study their benthic ecosystems. With the exception of countries like Norway, that's pretty wealthy. But when they look under it, they've lost 40% of their kelp forests. And do, do you think that, you know, pre because, I mean, people have been looking at this problem from a, a science and a conservation perspective for a long time. Uh, I mean, in a nutshell, is, is starting with a market and building a sustainable business Starting from that point of view, that, I mean, that's really the point of difference for ergonomics and why you're why you're so well placed. Um, yeah, our our like investment thesis now. comes. 
Uh, absolutely. Our, our investment thesis starts off with the, with the understanding that there is a tremendous amount of demand for sea urchin row, right? So 2020, you know, peak of COVID, you'd think that, that you know, like champagne and caviar, urchin prices would, would suffer. Not at all. We had record prices in 2020, despite half of the countries around the world in lockdown. But that's just how much demand there is for sea urchin row. Uh, and, and that trend doesn't look like it's going to be changing. So if we can then take that near endless demand for sea urchin row and combine it with the near endless supply of empty sea urchins, but using technology to make those urchins fattened up and commercially you know, transactionable, that is where I think the potential is, is that it's a, it's a very simple uh, economics uh, 101 lesson, but, uh, but that's, that's where the technology comes in and it makes that market transact. And, and Brian, have you started to see, um, or do you, do you consider that in the future there might actually be a price premium achieved on some of your row by telling the story about the, the additional biodiversity and, and climate mitigation impact? We're already seeing the price premium, but this is before we talk about the ecological benefits. Uh, for example, in our pilot sales that we've done in Japan, we have consistently achieved parity, if not greater, uh, prices in the market. And that has more to do with the basic supply chain. We are able to supply sea urchin roll all year round when everyone else does not have supply. So naturally, we're able to put our prices higher and the market is still willing to pay for it. So in Japan, the urchin season is between May and maybe, maybe July, August. It's very limited. But with our ranching approach, we can take all these barren urchins and keep on bringing it into the market, stable price, stable supply. And so we're already getting the premium. My hope is that as our story gets uh, communicated into the market, we will not only get that premium, but we will have consumers actively choosing to pay that premium and buying uh, these urchins so that they can be part of the, restor the res uh, restoration effort. Yeah, I mean, to me, uh, it just seems really powerful to me, particularly when you can, uh, I mean, look, an urchin taken from, from anywhere uh, in theory uh, has an impact on biodiversity, a positive impact on biodiversity and, um, and obviously climate mitigation. But in your case, um, when you can tell the story about, say, a particular area that's been remediated en masse mm. over time, um, the ability to tell, you know, a fantastic story about the impact of, you know, this row that you're eating has achieved, has helped achieve this. That's, mm. you know, I think increasingly consumers are, are really loving knowing where their food's coming from and even, yep. even better if there's a regenerative side to... Um, mm. the, the growing of that food or the harvesting of that food? Well, I think there's also another dimension here is that the current wild catch industry, which is what the urchin industry is built on today, uh, that is actually becoming more and more difficult for the divers because they need to go deeper and deeper into the ocean, looking in kelp forest, which is actually a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, and, and they have to go further away to catch a dwindling catch. And that is a very difficult situation we're putting them in because essentially these divers are risking their lives more than ever before just to be able to satisfy our, 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 our luxuries. What we're saying is, look, divers, don't go into the deep. Don't risk your lives. We're talking about catching those urchins that you just need to wear wading pants for that are literally on the shoreline. Collect those empty ones and give them to us. We will pay you for them. We'll pay you a premium even so that you can also collect the smaller ones that also prevent the kelp forest from recovering. 
uh, and, and be a, a steward of the ocean as opposed to an extractor. That's the proposition that we are now proposing to our fishers. Uh, and it just makes their lives safer. They can catch more because they don't need to be so selective and they don't have to go deep. So there's actually a, a, another dimension to that, which is just inherently making the divers' lives safer and easier. And, and if you work with many fishers um, rather than, say, you know, one or two large corporations to do the harvesting, then you naturally get custodians, right? If they're local, they, you know, they're, it's like, hey, I would do this for my local area anyway. And you're telling me that I can actually make some money out of maintaining and being a custodian of where I love? Fantastic. Exactly. And I, and I think actually the Australian models that I'm seeing and I'm learning about is has some tremendous potential. So when you have the abalone diver diving industry, you know, putting a bounty on the sea urchins, you're essentially subsidizing the cost of removing them. If we can be part of that initiative as well, and help you know effectively subsidize or pay for these urchins, we can get to that price point where divers become indifferent or might even prefer to fish restoratively as opposed to fish uh, in an extracting manner. So I think in many ways, Australia could be a very exciting example of how we should be looking at this, this, uh, this challenge. And I, I look forward to being able to collaborate with existing stakeholders uh, who, who have the same mission as us. Brian, you mentioned abalone there. Tell us a little bit about that um, in terms of the impact that the, the the urchins have on abalone. I mean, for the listeners, abalone in Australia, I mean, globally is a, a luxury product with a very high price point. And um, we have abalone on the, the east coast and the southern coast, if I'm not wrong, maybe WA um, coastline as well. Yeah, the average, down yeah. south. Yeah. Um, what, 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 what's actually happening where the urchins yeah. get in the way of the abalone? Well, so abalone and urchins usually get along when the ecosystems are in balance, right? So they both are, are, are grazers of kelp, but urchins tend to be a lot more aggressive and, and, and can dominate. When you have an urchin barren that establishes, it's usually the abalone that loses out. That means that they become starved, you have mass die-offs, and essentially you lose your fisheries. Northern California literally lost their entire $44 million abalone uh, fishery. It's been closed uh, ever since, and we don't know when it'll open. Uh, Japan, some of the most premium abalone are lost to urchin barrens. And so this is in regions that, that we have spent the time to look into it and, and, and understand the ecosystem. I bet you that there are a lot more urchin barrens out there that we don't even know about simply because we haven't spent the time to invest in trying to figure out what, what's going on under the, under the water. Cool. Brian, what about you? What about your personal connection to the ocean? Have you always been an ocean person? What's your what's your what's your ocean story? Uh, you know what? I wish I had a beautiful ocean story like I've heard in uh, in other podcasts, but I don't. I was born in a landlocked prefecture in Japan, and and I've always been. I can't I can't stand more than ten minutes on a boat without without retching over the side. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I am the farthest away from the ocean. Uh, but but it's the cold hard facts, right? Kelp forests, they grow much faster, they bind and sequester carbon, they're, the, they're the, the, the nursery of our entire ocean. Our kelp forests do not burn, right? Uh, the, 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 the cold, hard facts of the benefits of restoring kelp forests is such an incredible uh, factual story that it would, be, it, would, it would be remiss for me to not be pursuing this uh, if I'm given the opportunity to do so. I've been very blessed 
that the right people, the right organizations, and all the right things at the right time kind of coalesced to create Archonomics. So I feel like it's my mission to really make sure that all of this goodness gets deployed in the right way so that we have the greatest amount of impact. And that also includes, of course, paying a fair return to our investors as well, right? Because without their capital, we couldn't get off the ground. Uh, but also making sure that the fishers are better off than they were before, making sure the ecosystem is better, making sure that, that, that the ring effect benefits everyone. Uh, that's, that's, that's my mission. So the, I guess from a personal perspective, my motivation is also from a, almost a capitalist uh, uh, perspective as well. I think this is a great opportunity to prove that commerce and business, if you align the incentives and you know, follow, you know, follow the proper rules, it can be a real catalyst for positive change. So that's, that's my mission. I want to prove that. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you're pursuing it. Um, you, you, you said a moment ago that you've been blessed, but I, I'm sure um, there's a level of modesty in there as well, Brian. You, uh, you, know, you make your own luck and you take advantage of opportunities as they come up and um, you know, you've put yourself in, in, in front of those opportunities, I'm sure. Um, another, another comment you made about being landlocked is, is fantastic also because uh, quite often one of the things that I find myself doing is telling people what ocean impact is. So we say, oh, we're ocean impact organization. They say, well, what's ocean impact? Is that, is that working with industries and businesses uh, on the ocean? And I say, well, sort of, but not really. No, it's more about uh, businesses that can have a positive impact on the ocean. And that, that impact, a lot of the time, the more impact can come, the further upstream and further away from salt water you are. So in your case... <laughs> being landlocked <laughs> uh, no no barrier at all <laughs> and 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 look you know we need people we need people that aren't necessarily um in and around the ocean all the time to understand its importance and the interconnectedness of the earth and terrestrial land to the ocean and its impact on all of us i mean it's the air that we breathe it doesn't get any more fundamental than that it's the air that we <laughs> breathe if you like breathing you love the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair enough. I, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. Okay. Um, so, look, let's, you know, we, we've heard about urchinomics from a technical point of view. We understand the problem of urchins. We understand how you're tackling it. Let's spend a few minutes talking about some of the achievements that you're, you're pre most proud of in the, mm. in the, in the business's journey. And possibly mm. some of the key challenges at the same time that you've encountered along the way. Sure. So I think I think the biggest uh, achievement that that makes me really proud uh, is the fact that we have not just in theory done it, but we have taken our tech, deployed our tech, improved upon the tech in such a way that we have now have the the inputs and the systems and the protocols in place to convert ecologically destructive urchins into premium uni and have the market validated. So we have sold our, uh, our ranched urchins uh, from our trial sites around the world at the top restaurants in Tokyo, uh, at the, you know, the really, really premium uh, department stores, uh, as well as the, the, the high-end sushi restaurants in Ginza. So, and, so these are you know, the top places, the, the pickiest of pickiest consumers for sea urchin and sea urchin row is who we have managed to satisfy with our tech. So that has given us the confidence to know that we can deploy our concept throughout Japan, but also port a lot of that knowledge to the other regions like Canada, the United States, and, and to Norway and Australia and other places. And we're fairly confident that we're going to be able to deploy 
and, and achieve the kind of success that we've seen in Japan. So that's one of the, one of the big ones. Uh, the, the second one, I think, is that we have been very, very lucky, again, to have critical stakeholders that have bought into our mission and are giving us uh, an incredible amount of support, whether it's the Norwegian government that provided us the feed technology, whether it's uh, NTT Corporation, with Japan's largest telecoms company providing their AI and IoT support. Uh, we have uh, Eneos, uh, Japan's largest energy company that is now committed to investing in, in ergonomics. Uh, we also have one of the largest family offices in the world that are now uh, uh, committed to investing with us and growing our concepts throughout the world for both impact and profit. Uh, essentially, we are a tiny little speck, a smidgen of a company, yet the dominant players around the world are lending their support to us to achieve impact and profitability. And so to me, those are probably the biggest exciting achievements that we've gotten so far. So now the challenge is to say, okay, we're blessed with all of these opportunities. How are we going to execute it in the right way so that we get the most impact and, and profitability? So, so that's, that's the corollary to that opportunity is to make sure that we don't squander these opportunities and do it in a right way where we get the results that we want. Yeah, and uh, if I were to, oh, sorry, yep. I was just going to say, I mean, it sounds like one of your, one of the things that might, you know, be on your mind quite a bit is, is prioritization, right? You, you've you probably carved out a number of opportunities and the world is your oyster um, to some extent, but it's quite easy to trip over in the scale up process, right? Trying to yeah. um, do too much or get the sequence wrong. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and I think that's the reason why our commercial focus has been focused on the markets and the regions that have a lot of the infrastructure in place already. And that's why our commercial deployment. So we've uh, recently uh, uh, started a fundraising round of about 5 million euros, uh, which almost all of that is now secured. Uh, and, uh, and the whole purpose of that was really to you know, not only build the one commercial site that we already have uh, under construction, but build multiple sites make sure that we can do things at a certain scale so that we have the confidence to flip the switch and really build out further. So, uh, you know, uh, that's where our focus is going to be in primarily in Japan and a little bit in Canada and the United States uh, and hopefully uh, also Europe as well. But while our commercial efforts are focusing there, we want to make sure that our tech is available and we are working on some of the other more longer term, you know, more, let's face it, you know, more challenging regions. Uh, like the Australias and the Norways of the world or in the Chiles, uh, so that we're not doing things sequentially and losing time. And what's great is that I have the stakeholders and investors who are saying, look, we get it. We understand that from a purely commercial perspective, we really should pursue sequentially A, B, C, D, E. But they're saying, look, we get it. We have to fast track some of these other places for impact and they're letting me do it. So I think that's the biggest thing is that I have stakeholders and funders that are allowing me to see the bigger picture as opposed to just the bottom line. And that's so important, isn't it? I mean, I, I often use the term patient capital and that doesn't mm. necessarily have to refer to equity funding all the time, but, you know, or patient investors and they could be philanthropists or they could be, you know, equity investors. But, you know, if you have an impact mission and it's going to take time, then you can quickly screw it up from day one by getting the wrong people on board. If there's not alignment there and you don't know that they have the patience to stay the distance and to see that impact out. And it's, 
you know, it's a difficult thing to do, right? When you're talking to um, investors early on, they'll tell you all sorts of things and, you know, you need to take a few meetings to really get to understand that, you know, there is true alignment here and I'm going to be able to, you know, run this race the way that we, the way that we want. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. I mean, we have turned down countless traditional VCs simply because their timelines were not you know, suiting the, the the timelines that are required for ecosystem restoration. I mean, a kelp forest will bounce back in three to six months, but when it to, for it to be a mature kelp forest, that takes years. And if you don't have the patience for that, then we're just not the right investment. And I think that's the reason why our, our uh, the, the investment commitment by by Enos is is uh, and the big energy companies like in Japan is 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 very relevant because their interest uh, is about uh, um, uh, about blue carbon. So they are investing in ergonomics because they want to see blue carbon and blue carbon credits established, not just in Japan, but become a global uh, concept, a tradable concept. And uh, they see that uh, a, a venture, a commercial venture like ours that can restore uh, ecosystems and therefore contribute to blue carbon credits uh, they, they see that as, as, as the rationale of, of their investment. So yeah, it's, 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 it's nice to have investors who understand what we're trying to do, uh, and they're willing to, to, to fund it and allow me the flexibility. That's excellent. Brian, just really quickly, a quick one-on-one on how the blue carbon credits would work with, in, in practice with, with urchins. So I think again, Australia is a beautiful example. But I particularly think of Victoria. Uh, but uh, so there's seagrass meadows, for example, and of course kelp forests as well. But uh, seagrass meadows are probably one of the most better researched blue carbon credits. Where if you restore those ecosystems, they bind and sequester carbon in such a quantifiable way that you can produce uh, much like forestry uh, carbon credits. You can produce ocean credits. Uh, so Enos, uh, this energy company, the, the biggest energy supplier in Japan, actually, uh, they have a mission to create blue carbon credits. And what they're essentially saying is like, look, the science and the regulations are going to take a long time before blue carbon credits become a thing. So in order for us to catalyze this, we're prepared uh, to buy voluntary credits uh, from whomever is restoring uh, ecosystems uh, at fair market value in order to stimulate the creation of blue carbon uh, credits around the world. And they see us as a vehicle of being able to create those blue carbon credits, whether it's seagrass meadows that we're restoring by removing the urchins or kelp forests that we're restoring by removing the urchins. Um, so, so yes, we essentially have a $100 billion revenue-generating giant saying, look, every blue carbon credit that you produce, voluntary or official, we'll buy it up and put that money back into the restoration effort. So it's just an additional revenue stream for us, which would then either plow back in part to investors, but probably invest a good chunk of that back into the restoration effort. Yeah, there's there's probably a um, there's probably a whole nother podcast that we could talk about uh, um, uh, in regard to to Enios and and what I mean by that is I mean I, I find the word pragmatic coming up a lot in conversation um, in this impact space and the the need to be pragmatic about the types of organisations we're working with and you know how we can you know how can we can best work with them to um, to have impact. And, and my point around Enios is that, you know, here we have a traditional energy company and you have a impact driven, um, startup 
you know, you look at that and you think to yourself, hang on, where's the where's the synergy here, right? And a lot of people would say, well, how are you supporting a, you know, traditional energy company? But that's completely the wrong way to look at it, right? You're if you can help these big incumbents make real change, then that's the pragmatic approach that we need to take rather than this old school train of thought where you have, you know, conservationists not wanting anything to do with business and and vice versa. We need to start taking a pragmatic middle of the road approach where, you know, we are coming up with solutions. We are helping each other. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, we have been very fortunate to have a very wide spectrum of stakeholders and, and, and partners. Um, the, the one thing that really gets me excited about our venture is despite where you are on that spectrum, usually when it comes to urchin ranching or, or ecosystem restoration via urchin ranching, everyone can agree to that. So from the militant environmentalists to you know the corporates, you know whatever the, the extremities you, you, you want to call them, Around our venture, we seem to make a lot of good friends. So, so I feel very fortunate that we're again supported by a lot of people. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think the question now is how do we take all of this momentum and deploy it, like you said, in the right way, so that we don't trip up, uh, so that we 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 do right, uh, given all of the opportunities and all, all the good things that have happened to us so far. Well, that's a perfect segue into my my next question. We are sort of heading towards uh, the end of our discussion, but um, a, a couple more questions. What does the road look like for over the next twelve to twenty four months? What are your what are your priorities? You mentioned a capital raise in there. You've talked about the the impact plan impact project um, mm. in Australia. What, yes. what, what's on your plate? Yeah. So so with with the capital raise of five million euros, which uh, which I believe we're, we're closing to, uh, we're planning to use that again to build multiple sites, make sure that we can operate different sites around different regions, uh, make sure that our, our infrastructure works the way it should. Uh, and once we're confident in that, then we'll raise another round to, to really take it to the next level. Um, and of course, most of that capital is going to be deployed in our core markets of Japan, Canada, and the United States. Uh, however, uh, we do want to make uh, other regions that, that, that we believe we can do, uh, have impact on um, deploy. So, so in our 12 to 24 month goal, as much as we want to focus on the commercial side, I also have a, a big chunk of my time allocated for ergonomics impact. That means working with philanthropists, impact investors, concessionary uh, capitalists, you know, whatever, uh, in less proven markets like the Norways, like the Australias, like the uh, uh, like the Koreas, like the Croatias, uh, you know, wherever where there is no. Or, or there's not a very strong foundation for the urchin industry that we can leverage off. So we're going to have to build and do a lot more. But I think the outcomes are worth the effort. It's just that my private investors alone can't bear that entirely. So we're looking for ways where we can essentially you know, work together uh, with, with others to, 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 to make this happen. So that's my, that'll be my focus. It'll be commercial developments in Canada, U.S., uh, in Japan and impact developments in the Norways and Australias of the world. And you mentioned a, a secondary raise after you after this raise, and and you've got some. I mean, what's the sort of time frame there? What probably? Yeah, we're, we're thinking months? probably in a couple. Yeah, in, in a couple a couple of years, I think uh, once we can build out the sites and we're confident that the model works, and and we're confident that we can manage multiple sites. Uh, 
it's, it's one thing to you know build one site and run it, but it's another thing to have it in different geographic regions. So, so we really want to make sure that that we can do right first, and then once we're confident there, that's when we'll scale up uh, much much bigger. The you know our existing uh, investors and the new ones that are coming in, as well as the other partners we have, it's not really the capital, the the lack of capital that's the issue. We just got to make sure that we can you know uh, take their capital and and deploy it. Uh, properly first and i want to build that confidence first before we really flip the switch absolutely yeah you need to um you need to crawl before you can walk yeah exactly if you were to um provide one or two key learnings from your own journey as a as a founder in this space what would they be so think about um you know budding entrepreneurs out there that are looking for uh a venture or just getting started on their ocean impact journey? What are some sort of practical um, uh, learnings that you can share with them? Well, for me, when I look at the oceans, I, I see the oceans as the, the quintessential example of, of the, uh, the tragedy of the commons uh, case where we, we all should be doing something good about it, but we all tend not to. And we have to, we all suffer the consequences. Um, Given that the problem is so big and it's been neglected for so long, partially because of just lack of knowledge, but more, you know, I think there's also wanton neglect as well. Uh, the, the problem is a lot bigger than we probably envision it. That means that an individual investor, individual entrepreneur alone probably can't tackle the whole thing. So I, I think the what what I've learned in my journey is getting to know people, uh, building relationships, networking, uh, finding out that we're working on a similar problem where we can help each other without you know, blunting our own competitive positions. There, there are ways that we can collaborate inter-industry, intra-industry, outside of our industry bubbles uh, to, to, to work towards a, a, a common goal, which is a restored healthy ocean. And I think that the key there is, you know, let's not be shy about our ideas. Let's just talk and, and brainstorm and find ways that we can help each other. Uh, I think that Urchinomics benefited immensely from that. So there's no way my personal networks and relationships alone did this. It was, it was all this person's or that person who knows that person who has the right, it, it's, it's all of that. So, so uh, you know, I, I think if we can just do more of that, we all will benefit. And at the end, the oceans will benefit as well. Absolutely. Collaboration is, is so key. I mean, we're running a, an early stage uh, ideation program at the moment. And um, one of the things that I impressed upon the group last week was that, you know, there's no better space to be operating in where you can freely reach out to people and there's a real willingness to, to help. Um, mm. So, you know, reach out to people wherever you can. Yeah, sure. You know, be clear with your ask. But um you know, it, the challenges the ocean faces are so large and, you know, most people working in this space are driven by passion. They're there to help. You know, if you've got something, if you've got an idea worth progressing and they can support you, let's talk about moral obligation again, Brian, they're going to help. And, um, you know, so get off your get off your backside and go and find those people that, that can support you in your journey. Um Speaking of journeys, Brian, last sort of question to wrap it up. What are some practical things? What are some ways that people can find out more about Urchinomics and how can they, how can they support you in your journey? Um, 
Oh, uh, well, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, of course, uh, you know, please uh, look us up at urchinomics.com. Uh, and of course, we have our, our Instagram at, at hashtag urchinomics. Um, uh, but uh, I think the the opportunity really, especially in Australia, is is uh, well, we're we're right now trying to cook up a, a bit of a larger master plan. We're trying to work with the scientific communities, nonprofits, and and and, and industry. Uh, but in in the next few months, we're hoping that we'll be able to have something on the ground. Uh, and uh, you know, if uh, if there is one thing that we could do, I think the the, the key is to support the nonprofits that are that are working towards ecosystem restoration. Uh, particularly, I think uh, in Tasmania is probably the, the, the greatest immediate threats that we're seeing. Uh, the, the giant kelp forests are collapsing at an unprecedented scale. So, uh, you know, not so much, you know, as much as I'd love for you to you know, support us as well, but, you know, I think the more important one move right now is to support the nonprofits and the scientists that are trying to find pragmatic ways to resolve the, the urchin barren kelp deforestation situation in Tasmania. Uh, that'll probably be the first area where we will try to deploy our tech as well under the Virtuonomics Impact Program. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's the nonprofits and the scientists. They're the ones that probably need the most support right now. Excellent. Well, um, Brian, I've really enjoyed this chat this evening or in your case, this morning. Um, I hope the listeners have got as much out of it as I have. It's been a pleasure talking to you, mate. Thank you very much for for joining us. Um, no, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. We'll we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.